Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Yes, indeed. Hello there. Welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 170. Brought to you, as always, by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Rich Kimball and Carrie Haskell with you here on Downtown. Got a couple of interesting conversations for you this week, as we do every time. Uh, later on in the program, journalist and author Josh Karp will join us. But we get it underway by talking with actress, well, an actress who has added some uh, some hyphens to her job title. She is also screenwriter and producer of her brand new film that will be released in select theaters at the end of August and also streaming on Amazon and Apple services. The film is called Rushed, written by actress Siobhan Fallon Hogan and starring Siobhan as well as Robert Patrick, Perry Gilpin, Brad Weary, and more. We had a chance to talk with Siobhan about the making of the film. Siobhan, we appreciate you being with us. I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Well, I I can't wait to see the film. Boy, the trailer is just uh, so intense, so powerful. Let's see, a story of an Irish Catholic mom from upstate New York. How were you able to get inside the head of that character? Geez, I don't know. It's so foreign to me. (laughs) (laughs) What, uh, What was the inspiration for the story, though? Well, I have three kids. So I think any mom who has three kids from the time they're about... 16, depending on how bad of a job you did raising them, they start going out like, you know, dirty, rotten stayouts. So then when they go off to college and with this whole generation of um, cell phones now, when they don't text you back, you think, okay, well, surely they'll get back to me. And then when the hours start, start to slip by, your imagination kind of runs wild. So it's kind of from the point of view of the mom where she's panicked and way too much of a helicopter mom, way too much, way too involved anyway. But then with, all, with the real fears of what actually does go on in college and what does go on when your kids go out the door and you don't hear back from them after a certain time. Uh, so for anybody who hasn't seen the trailer yet, well, first, what's wrong with you for not seeing it? Make a point of seeing it, but can you give just a, a brief synopsis of, of what the story's about? Absolutely. So it's about a mom and her family from upstate. The oldest boy goes off to college and he's rushing a fraternity and she is helping him learn the pledge. And she's like, you're going to get in. You're going to be great. The husband's saying it's the best thing for him. And then, of course, he rushes the fraternity through this hazing and we see how crazy the hazing can get. And then all hell breaks loose and the, the son is harmed and the mother is not too happy in any way. And she goes off the rails when when the, when when the law doesn't treat the incident correctly and she takes the matter into her own hands and goes toe to toe with a frat boy and the question is who's tougher the mother or the frat boy <laughs> and and in the trailer it says hell hath no fury like a mother scorned and you know I'm a redhead so I'm a psycho so <laughs> i realize i'm a lot crazier than other mothers but that's why the movie gets a little crazy so it's a big thriller and uh, the reaction's been unbelievable. I love that moment, and I can't wait to see it in the context of the film in the trailer when uh, Robert Patrick's character just says, how you doing? <laughs> and your response. I'm good. Mm. Yes, Robert Patrick, you know, he, he um, you know, from The Terminator and from Walk the Line and many, many movies, he and I worked together 
four times in the last 30 years. So when I called him up to play my husband, um, he was like, I'm all in because, you know, he has kids too. So whether father or mother, you go cuckoo bird when someone harms your kid. See, my, my son is only seven. So by the time he's in college, I won't remember I have a kid. Um, Listen, that's better. That's better. <laughs> I, have, I have PTSD for my kids. But I, that's such a, a touch is such a raw nerve. Just watching the, the clips as a parent, that that had to be difficult to put yourself in that situation and to feel those emotions. Well, here's the thing: I've laid in bed many a night thinking, "Oh no, oh no," and your your mind goes to a spot that you don't want it to go to. And then, of course, you read about all these incidents in the paper, what happens in college, and all these horrible things. And you know, I'm not anti-frat. I mean, my husband was in a frat, and I think frats can be great. But any institution, there can be a bad apple, right? So when there's a bad apple, some t- somebody has to root out that bad apple. And it just happens to be the mother in this movie. We're talking with Siobhan Fallon Hogan here on Downtown. The movie is Rushed, uh, that is in select theaters uh, later in the month, including here in New England, a screening at the Coolidge uh, in Cambridge on the 27th, and also will be streaming on Apple uh, and Amazon services at the time. You mentioned Robert Patrick. Wow, what a great cast you have with uh, with Robert, our friend Perry Gilpin, Ellen Cleghorn. What a terrifically talented group. Jake, Jake, Jake Weary from Animal Kingdom. He's fabulous mm. in it. Um, yeah, Perry Gilpin and I have been friends forever. We did a play together years ago. She, you know, Frazier, she sat, sat right in your spot in Frazier for years, <laughs> right. right, in the radio booth. And, um, yeah, Robert gives an unbelievable performance. Perry gives a fabulous performance. The young people... Um, there's newcomers, Justin Linville and J.J. Warren, who plays my son. My own kids are in it. Um, uh, Peter Hogan and Sinead Hogan. Got to plug your own kids. You know what I'm saying? Right. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> now, you're wearing so many hats as, as actor, screenwriter, producer. Who do you complain to if things aren't going well? Listen, you only complain to yourself. And 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 when you see yourself on the screen and you're like, it's a good excuse. They're like, you know, I don't look so good, but I was kind of tired from wearing all those hats. No, it, it's crazy. I've never produced a film. I've never written a film, but I was used to sitting in my trailer eating bonbons and they'd knock on the door and be like, Siobhan, it's time to come. And I'd be like, well, I just have to finish this last little chocolate before I come to set. <laughs> there, there's no time to even, you know, there's no room for mistakes when you're producing and writing. Obviously, it makes it easier to get inside the screenwriter's head. There are none of those moments when you think, well, what does this mean? I don't understand. Exactly. And, you know, that... That was amazing, too. And another thing that was helpful, because my kids were in college age, when they first heard some of my dialogue, I'd be like, come on, dude, you want to go smoke a boner? And they're like, Mom, absolutely not. No one talks like that. The, the movie, when people see it, the fraternity house is actually my house. So when you see Jake Weary, who plays the fraternity president at the top of the of the balcony, and then all the pledges and the, and the frat boys when they're getting pinned, that's my house. When my when my kids and his frat boy um, friends came over and they saw the house, they're like, "Okay, this doesn't look like a frat," and they just redid the whole thing. So it was pretty cool. Now uh, you mentioned Perry Gilpin; she's a great friend of our show, has been on a, a bunch oh. of times, and she'll be on with us uh, the day before uh, the film opens to talk about it as well. Uh, we've only dealt with her on a on a show basis, and she's awesome. Tell me, she's as amazing in real life. She is amazing. I did a play with her. Um, in LA, I only lived in LA for two years in, in, in 89 and 90, she, she produced the play. She was way ahead of her time. And she is a, of course, as we all know, a hilarious actress. Well, in this movie, she plays an upper crusty mom who I won't tell you what has happened to her, 
but it's a very serious role. And she is beyond brilliant. I mean, she is superb in the movie. And she is a great person. When I call, I mean, listen, these people, Robert Patrick, Jake Weary, Perry Gilpin, they make big paychecks a week. I call up and I go, hey, listen, I'm doing a movie that I wrote. Here's my budget. How would you like come make make $2 a week? And they were all on board because they loved the script. And I also had done um, three movies with Lars von Trier over in Denmark. I did Dancer mm. in the Dark and Dogville. And, and uh, I just did with Matt Dillon, I did um, The House that Jack Built. So I sent the script over to him. You know, I had no idea it was good. And um, they called me the next day and said, we want to co-produce. So, I mean, I'm so grateful, you know, because it's all about names, right? You know, people like, oh, you have Robert Patrick, you have Perry Gilpin, you have Jake Weary. This must, why Why did they do it? And it's so, but I'm so forever grateful to them. And I'm actually doing another film and Robert's going to be in it again. Um, and I wanted Perry in it, but Perry's going to be busy with the new Frasier. You have been in some of the biggest comedies of the last 30 years, uh, Forrest Men in Black, but I have to imagine uh, probably a week doesn't go by when someone doesn't bring up your role in Seinfeld. Oh, always. They're always like, could you please say, that's why there's a buzzer. <laughs> <laughs> there was a jewel thing in the building. I couldn't come out of the building, Jerry. Yeah, because see, I'm from upstate, um, outside of Syracuse, and there was a girl that I went to high school with and she always got all the boys and she was always like, what? Shut up. And she'd look him right in the eye and she was like, shh. And so I literally did an imitation of her. And yeah, no, Seinfeld was, those were the glory days. That SNL, I mean, Mm. I've been really, really lucky. So. Well, you do 20 episodes of SNL. That has got to put you on the, on the top of your game because of the pressure of putting that together every week. The pressure is crazy. And I never did stand-up comedy. I was, I'm an actress. So people thought, I've always thought I've done stand-up, but I would ne- that's a different breed of a person. And I love stand-ups, but they are cutthroat because they have to be. You know, when you're an actress, you get the part, you have the part, and that's the end of it. When you're, when you're on SNL, you go, you go week to week fighting for parts. So it's like, um, you know, the fighting Irish uh, every day of the week while you're on that show. (laughs) Uh, You're also an ensemble member of one of the most prestigious acting companies in America, uh, the Atlantic Theater Company. Uh, Do you miss being on stage? I love, love, love stage. I mean, there's nothing like that immediate reaction. When When you're doing a film, you know, you have to wait till they all cut till people can burst out laughing or burst out crying because you can't make any noise. When you're on stage, the Atlantic Theater Company, you know, David Mamet and uh, William H. Macy founded it. And I was so lucky that they asked me to be in it so many moons ago. They needed somebody comedic. And um, yeah, I love acting on stage for my, you know, my, my youngest is now 19. My oldest daughter's 26. She actually writes for the New York Post. She covered Cuomo and she, um, she broke the nursing home story. Anyway, wow. so yeah, so she... Um, I have three kids, but when you're raising your kids, it's tough to do theater. At least it was for me. You know, you got, you know, you have the matinee on Wednesdays and Wednesday nights and Sundays. So I didn't do, you know, I've, I've been, I did Shakespeare in the Park in New York City. I've been at the Atlantic. So I did a lot of theater. I'd love to get back to it. Um, but when I was raising my kids, movies just worked so much better for me and TV. Yeah. This is such an intense drama, a rush, but you've done so much great comedy through the years, but, but is it true that in doing comedy, it's, you can't play it. 
as if you know you're in a comedy. There's nothing that makes me cringe more when I see someone who thinks they're funny and trying to be funny because it just makes you not want to laugh. And I come from a really, really funny family. My father was the funniest person I have ever met in my life. And everyone thought so from ever in Syracuse. And I went to, I, I was like a glutton for punishment. I went to Lemoyne College in Syracuse. I'd go out and be like, you're Bill Fallon's daughter, his finest man I've ever met. And so, you know, we, you know, a lot of, a lot of families really like, Look, they they emphasize you being smart. They emphasize you being nice. My family emphasized you being funny. That was one, you know. Like, hey, you want it? Who gets the last brownie? Well, who was the funniest? Who told the funniest story? I'll never forget. My sister Megan one time said she was she was like the late life child. My mother had it like forty six. She actually went to Boston College, and she um she raised her hand and said, "Can I talk now?" <laughs> actually you want to know something my sister megan is so funny she was in my mother's flea bag this improv group at boston college that still is very um prominent and when i did baby mama with um tina fey and amy poehler lauren michaels cast me in that and and i had the speech impediment you know i was i was a mother i was like you want some wash milk i i walked on set and amy said how's megan i said my sister she's like she was a legend at Boston College because she was in the same improv group that Amy was in. But Megan was six feet tall. Megan said, I'm smart. I'm not getting into acting. She became a lawyer because she thought she was too tall to be an actress. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've been part of so many great ensembles. And one of my favorites, because it seems like every, every talented actor in the business has been on the show at one time or another, and that's Billions. Oh, you know, I had worked with Paul Giamatti on my first big role the negotiator. I was actually pregnant with my son, Peter, but they didn't know it. So if you watch the negotiator with Samuel Jackson, um, I'm on the floor when I'm taken hostage because I thought I'm pregnant. I know I'm going to be on this floor for like two weeks while they're shooting this, but my arm, I'm, 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 you know, um, handcuffed to the filing cabinet. My arm is up. So you'll notice my, I almost atrophied because almost all the blood went out of my arm. <laughs> I might sue them someday if my, my arm continues to not work. <laughs> no, I saw today the releases have been delayed, but eventually it will be out. Can't wait to see it. My little guy will want to see it. Uh, uh, you are part of the cast, a very talented cast of Clifford the Big Red Dog. Well, it's hilarious. You know, I have done so many. First of all, I love kids. I've always loved kids. When I was a kid, I loved to babysit. You know, as a young teenager and everything. And I've been in so many kids' movies. And Jordan Kerner who produced Clifford the Big Red Dog, also produced Charlotte's Web that I was Mrs. Zuckerman in. I, and I've been in Holes and Daddy Daycare. So yeah, so they pushed Clifford the Big Red Dog. I think they're worried about the Delta variant, but we are moving on with Rushed, August 27th. We are, we are not afraid. People are, we've already sold out in Red Bank, New Jersey, um, because so many people in the town worked on, my, on the movie as extras and things. So we're sold out for like a couple of days. Um, and I really have confidence that people will come to the theaters and want to come back to the theaters. After this, they see this thriller, though, they might be so scared. <laughs> <laughs> well, we want people to see it in theaters, obviously. But we're also in a it's a new world in, in film right now. And, and with these streaming options, I, I guess there's another side to the coin in that it also exposes your film potentially to a much larger audience. Yeah, you know, I wouldn't know how to stream a movie if you held a gun to my head. <laughs> but I know that the young people love to do that. But that's what's so 
why I think so many theaters want rushed in their theaters is because it has two audiences. It's got right. the kids going into college, the college kids, and the kids who've been in college and know what, the, what, what goes on. And it's got the parents who are scared to death. So you find that people, you know, 40 and up, they're, they're really anxious to go back to the theaters, whereas the kids like to video on demand, which, you know, the movie will be on Apple and iTunes and all that. And, um, but it, I want kids, you know, college kids to see it on the big screen too, because it's a whole different deal. I would like to see college kids watch it in the theater with their parents. That would be an interesting ride home. Right, exactly. They might not be able to apply to college or they might get dropped, pulled out. <laughs> you'll go to a commuter school. You'll be just fine. Like, exactly. Or you'll be in the hell. Like my daughter was online all last year through Virginia oh, Tech. That's yeah. the worst. Absolutely. Oh, boy, yeah. Well, I'm a, I'm a high school teacher, and we're, we're still wondering if in three weeks we'll be masking up when we go back. Oh, boy. What do you teach? I teach uh, history, and then I'm a theater director with, with oh, my high school theater awesome. kids. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. I mean, I feel, honestly, people will say, what's the best stage experience you ever had? Pans down, high school theater. <laughs> oh, I did Guys and Dolls. I, I, I think of that opening night. That Those were the glory days. And, te- and people like you that give that gift to kids and turn them on to theater is incredible. I mean, it's really something. You should be so proud of yourself. Well, I, I know what it did for me as, a, as an awkward, goofy high school kid. And yeah. uh, you know, gives you gives you confidence that you don't get from many other places. Absolutely. I mean, I wasn't awkward and goofy. I Listen, I was really together. I was a disaster. They called me squirrel because my hair was so <laughs> fuzzy. They, called, <laughs> they used to call me froggy because my voice was so deep. And then I was like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, I could be in a play. How about that? Put, put, stick that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> well, I can't wait to see Rushed again. Uh, available in uh, selected theaters and streaming. Amazon, Apple on August 27th. Hoping it gets up here to Maine, but we'll, we'll see it one way or the other. Oh, I think uh, we're hoping to get it into Maine for sure. Um, Vertical has it into the major markets. We're getting into a lot of independence. Yeah. Oh, no, it's hysterical. I call around and go, hi, I'm Siobhan Fallon-Hogan, and I have a movie. Like, it's like I'm like a kid, like, hey, I'm doing a play. You want to come? And I'm like, Vertical's put in major markets, but I believe in independent theaters. What do you think? Give me a call. And they call. I just got it into Sarasota, Florida yesterday, and St. Petersburg, Florida, and, oh, Vail, Colorado. It's like, it's crazy. Well, I can't wait to see it. And I'm so glad that Perry reached out to me and said, hey, I my friend Siobhan so- did this movie. Check this out. Let me tell you, any friend of Perry's is a friend of mine. I love Perry. Hey, wait, by the way, do you know what um, Perry's nickname was when she was little? No, but I feel like I might find out soon. Little Squirrel. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that'll be coming up in about two or three weeks when we talk to her. <laughs> She's the best. I love She's her. And by the way, her kids, you know, her husband's a fabulous artist. I went to the art, his art show, and I see these two girls, just twins laughing their heads off in New York City, like normal. And I'm like, who are those two kids? They're having a riot. Of course, it's Perry's kids. <laughs> it's terrible. Well, listen, it. I can't thank you enough, honestly. And I hope I can get this up into Maine for sure. Well, I hope so too. But we'll uh, we'll get it up on uh, on our end and let people know all about it, get it on social media and the like. It's so great thank to meet you. Thank you so much. Anytime. And I, I really, really appreciate it. Thanks a lot. We wish you big success with the film. We'll talk again. Uh, Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Siobhan Fallon Hogan talking about her new film, Rushed.
And again, that's uh, released in select theaters and on streaming services on August 27th. We'll get a quick word here from our friends at Cross Insurance. And when we come back, we'll talk with writer Josh Carp. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Hey, we're back. It's Downtown the Podcast. Always love it when Josh Karp stops by for a visit. Author of uh, books like A Feudal and Stupid Gesture. Expert on Orson Welles. Of course, we talked a little Welles, Ned Beatty, and more when Josh Carp visited with us on downtown. Well, hey. good day, Mr. Carp. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? I'm, I'm doing all right, thank you, for a man of my advanced years. I you know, made, it, uh, <laughs> made it through most of the summer so far without significant injury, so that's good. Good deal. Are you doing any coaching this summer? No, I, I finally have uh, aged out of, or my kids have aged out of me coaching. Um, I stop when uh, when they no longer, uh, when the parents start caring about who wins and who loses. <laughs> That's like the end of the line for me. I kind of, it's about the age of 10 or 11. My, my youngest is 13 now. So I, uh, I, I, got, I got out of that business. But no, I, I, I loved it when I did it. Are you coaching? I am not. Uh, no, my son hasn't started yet. I'm, uh, we'll see what happens. He's uh, So far, his level of involvement in anything is at the skim-the-surface level. He'll try stuff and then move <laughs> on to something new, and then we're okay with that so far. Oh, good deal. Yeah, no, it was uh, – I, I once I, uh, I almost got uh, punched by an opposing coach who I tried to calm down for trying to calm him down, and I was like, okay, this is, this is not going to last for – forever (laughs) in terms of coaching that was when i was like okay here's the cutoff did he look at all like vic morrow no you know it was really funny he it was like one of those things where you know you never really uh you know you think like don't touch an angry person but i figured why not and i like kind of put my hand on his shoulder and said hey why don't we just let this go and all of a sudden i looked and he was rearing back like he wanted to hit me and he was a tiny little guy and I was like, oh, boy. And I was like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> I was like, game over. We're leaving. And he was like, what? And I'm like, you were going to hit me. And he's like, what? Wow. And so, yeah, he did. He was not as scary as Vic Morrow. So, Sport. so that was good news. Sport bringing out the best in people yet again. Yes, of course. Yeah, no, that's I, 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 I went through a lot of hockey and a lot of baseball over the years. So uh, <laughs> I got to see all kinds of the huge range of human behavior. All right. So I, I have to ask, have you had any success tracking down Gabe Kaplan? Yes, though we are in, uh, I've, I've been trying to get him to do an interview about his, uh, his time on battle, the network stars. We are corresponding, but we have not agreed to anything yet. So, so for, uh, for anybody who doesn't so know, nice. the, the story is that apparently years after his, his famous, uh, matchup with, <laughs> with, uh, 
Um, uh, now his name is Scott, Robert Conrad. Robert Conrad. Uh, in in yeah. Battle of the Network Stars. Years later, they got together for a dinner. Right. Yeah, no, it's a, he wrote a great article about it. I really, I'm, I'm dying to interview him about it. He uh, he wrote a terrific article about, about getting back together with him. I mean, I think like 40 years later, something like that, like shortly before Robert Conrad died. But that was, uh, yeah, no, that, 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 I, I think I may have said this before, but I, that, that moment was like, uh, was like my Kennedy assassination, the <laughs> argument, or the, 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 that, that episode of Battle of the Network stars with him and Telly Savalas and, uh, and Robert Conrad, it was never equaled again. That was really the high point of the Battle of the Network stars, you know, listening to, uh, listening to Howard Cosell talk about Scott Bayo like he was, uh, a five-star athlete. Great. <laughs> I tried. I, I had no luck. I tried and tried to track down Robert Conrad for, for a number of years. He was, for a while, doing some radio work uh, wherever he lived at, really? at the end of his life. Was was doing, I think, a, like a weekend radio show that was essentially just him telling stories about all of his adventures on and off screen, which would have been a great listen, too. But uh, I'm disappointed I never caught up with him. Oh, I'll bet. He would have been great. He was a Chicago guy, too, so I always he was always kind of a vague presence around around these parts in terms of, you know, like, you know, with Chicago, we're always so um, kind of tribal about, you know, people who who come from here. In fact, we, I was uh, watching something with my kids, and I, there was an actor, and I was like, that guy's got to be from Chicago. I could tell by the way he talks, you know. And it's, uh, so yeah, Robert Conrad was always, you know, we always get kind of like the weird minor celebrities other than Bill Murray. <laughs> so who is the quintessential Chicago actor? Oh, God. Let me think now. Now, you're, now, now I'm on the spot. Um, you know, the guy who most, who most sounds like a Chicago and who's not, who's not really famous is that John Kapalos, who's in a lot of the John Hughes movies. Um, he, uh, he plays the oh, who is he? He's the future brother-in-law in Sixteen Candles. He sounds the most like anybody oh, yeah. in Chicago. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, Bill Murray. I mean, occupies such a huge space in everybody's uh, everybody's psyche around here. And I live like I, you know, my um, I live not far from the town where he grew up, so they're kind of an even larger presence around here. So he he always kind of wins the Chicago thing because he he shows up a lot. So. Kapalos is but Canadian. I had more Chicago-y. I'm sorry, go ahead. I can't believe Kapalos is Canadian. I was just looking him up. I would never have guessed that. Is he really? Yeah. He's not even from Chicago? No, from London, Ontario. Oh, my God. Now, that's depressing. But <laughs> I thought he, because he, he really, he does a Chicago one better than anybody I've ever seen. <laughs> he was, uh, yeah, he was the, the janitor in the breakfast club, right? Yes, exactly. Who had, exactly. and I, I, yeah, I, I often quote him uh, in talking with other teachers at school, his great line to the assistant principal, the aptly named Dick, when he said to him, uh, if the kids haven't changed, Dick, you've changed. <laughs> Have you found that to be true? Oh, yeah. And, yeah. Uh... Ab- you know, when people start, <laughs> people start complaining about how awful the kids are, I'm like, you know what they were i've been doing this a while they were pretty much the same 30 years ago circumstances yeah, might have changed yeah, I, a little I, bit i i found I, I that was probably the case i used to i probably said before i used to i taught journalism at northwestern for a while and uh 
and the uh, and I changed for sure. I think like I, you know, uh, once I'd been there for five or six years, I started thinking everybody, all the all the students had changed, and probably in the end, it was me. I started to realize like what I was, you know, what I was cut out for and what I wasn't, and what kind of uh, once once nobody knew who. Once I had classes full of kids who had never heard of like Spiro Agnew, I started going like, "Oh boy, I'm 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 too old to be <laughs> to, to be around this place." Yeah, I mean, when I when I started, I used to always ask kids the question, uh, "Hey, go home and ask your parents where they were when Kennedy was assassinated." And and it's it's been a while now, but I, I remember the first time I had a student come in and say, "My parents weren't born when Kennedy was assassinated." And it was like a right. dagger right through the heart. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. So I'm not like, oh, now I ask you, do your parents remember when the Challenger exploded? The what? Never mind. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's going gonna, it's gonna to have to be September 11th for you. Soon, I think, I well, I like, think so. And that, that was strange, too. The first class I had that wasn't even alive on 9-11. That was, that was bizarre to get used to. Oh, my God, how strange is that? Yeah, no, that's incredible. Mm. Uh, we're talking with Josh Karp here on Downtown. I saw this thing the other day, and I thought of you immediately. Uh, what's up with Alec Baldwin and William Friedkin and their search for Orson Welles' cut of The Magnificent Ambersons? You know, I do not know a ton about it, but I do know that there is a fairly well-funded um, effort to find this lost, cut of the Magnificent Ambersons. I mean, that's the great thing. Uh, you know, it, it's funny. You would think, you know, at a certain point, people would stop seeking various, you know, uh, Orson Welles treasures. But that's the great thing about him is that, you know, he, everything other than Citizen Kane, you know, came with a story um, about how, what, what it could have been. Um, had, you know, the people with the money not, undercut mm. um his uh i mean i think it's almost impossible i mean you know every you can think of other directors where there are you know there's like you know one film where it's like oh you know the director's cut was better with well there's there are, you know unfinished projects there are um movies where you know he was not allowed to cut it the way he wanted to you know and and, and people recut you know recut it or um you know there's just mountains of film and so yeah the amberson cut is you know considered because because amberson's was going to be the movie that i think to some large extent was going to be greater than citizen king right and there is this you know like i, I just I, it's one of the things i love about orson welles there's this whole mystery around where's the cut that he made that the studio you know rejected while he was down in brazil um, shooting a documentary, um, and so yeah, no, it's it's one of the great one of the great mysteries, and that you know is something that you know the the you know his vision. I think that's what the the one common denominator with everything is. People are always looking for the thing that really fit his vision and wasn't undone by uh, undone by studios or undone by producers or whatever. So he, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, every other director you know may have one or two of those. He has like you know, 20 of them. Well, speaking of that, from your perspective, what's the best version of touch of evil? Oh, you know, I, I like touch of evil. I, 
as I've seen it, you know, mm. I think, you know, the one, the one with the, the, you know, is commonly shown. I mean, I haven't, you know, watched, I haven't watched it in a long time, but I just, that's such a great movie. And it's such a great, you know, backstory because, you know, that was, he made, uh, oh, actually that's a different, I'm thinking lady of Shanghai with the, with the, um, with him picking up the, uh, the book in a, uh, in a like corner store and oh right somebody, oh I want to make the lady <laughs> from Shanghai, <laughs> but he uh, but yeah no I mean Touch of Evil I, that's it's such a great movie and it's such a, what's so great about it is that it's such a great B movie yes you know exactly that he raised you know he he took he didn't try to make it something that it wasn't and it was you know the B movie as an art form and how he just you know did such a spectacular job of that but. uh yeah, what a, you know, what a, he left behind so many stories that I think, you know, that I'll be done buried before they find everything that we're supposed to be seeing of him. Touch of Evil, too, is one of my favorite Wells performances because it's so, it's so without vanity. He is just, he's an awful, awful character in that in so many ways, but he's brilliant at it. Oh, yeah. And have you ever heard the story about him? Uh, there, there's a great story about how that's possibly, you know, something that he made up as life <laughs> went on. But he claimed that when he was making Touch of Evil and he was back living in Hollywood, he had a party one night and he came home from the set and he still had all of his makeup on and the guests had arrived and everybody was going, God, Orson, you look terrific. Look at you. You're, you're fantastic. Because <laughs> everybody's so full of crap. You know, that they're just used to telling everybody they look great. And he had all this makeup on that made him look heavier and worse than he actually looked. Um, but, you know, so, yeah, that was his, his story of how, how full of it everybody in Hollywood was. <laughs> I was uh, we interviewed recently uh, a gentleman who wrote a book on the history of moonlighting, uh, which was a wonderful oh, book. Wow. And he had talked to just about everybody except Bruce Willis. But uh, Sybil Shepard told the story about the time that, uh, Wells nearly burned down the house she was sharing with Peter Bogdanovich because he had he had put a lit cigar into his robe and then forgotten about it, and so he set the I, robe I down and, always... and boom! The next thing you know, there's smoke billowing out of his room. Yeah, no, I, 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 the story I, there has got to be a, a really good fictionalized version of that of him living at Bogdanovich's house to be made into a movie or a short story somewhere. Because yeah, he, I mean, it was like the man who came to dinner except for real and 10 times crazier. I mean, that was, you know, he, uh, he, he basically, you know, Bogdanovich had, had really made it. And he had this uh, production company, the director's company that was worth a ton of money. And it was kind of his moment at the peak and Orson, moved into his house, you know, they, he let him use the house while he was out of, uh, out of the country shooting. And when Bogdanovich and, uh, Sybil Shepard came back, Orson had turned it into his house and the studio. And he was basically shooting the other side of the wind there. And he was occupying 90% of the house and Peter and Sybil were cramped <laughs> into this little corner of this mansion in Bel Air. And, uh, yeah, he was, you know, I, I think as Sybil Shepard, I recall telling me the story, you know, she said, Orson, you know, when she came down and, you know, said something about the fire, you know, he said, oh, nothing's happening. You know, he got all puffy and he accused her of eating all the fudge sickles. Um, just great, 
<laughs> when he very clearly was the one who ate all the fudgesicles. I always love that. He always was, you know, there, there were always stories about Orson, you know, like he didn't eat in front of people often, but he would, you know, eat, you know, 10 bags of Fritos behind the scenes and then accuse Sybil Shepherd of eating all the Fritos or eating all the fudgesicles, which I just love. But, oh, somebody man. once said that they said, you know, he could, t- he could tell you a story. And he knew he was lying, you knew he was lying, and he knew you knew he was lying, but you just had to believe it as the absolute truth and accept it, because it was Orson Welles, you know, he was just so good at, you know, kind of creating all this drama around whatever was happening in his life. We uh, lost a a great actor since the last time you and I spoke. Uh, For my money, there wasn't anybody better when it comes to character actors in the 70s and 80s and, and beyond than Ned Beatty. I don't know that he ever had a bad performance. Oh, he is, he is fantastic. I, I love Ned Beatty. I mean, I, I that, that scene in Network oh. uh, <laughs> was is honestly like one of the great scenes in all film history. And he's, and I, I recall reading a book of a book about Network by I think David Itzkoff. And, um, and he talks about that scene. And I think Ned Beatty, like he flew in for one day, you know, so he had no, you know, he was just kind of dropped into that picture, came in, shot that scene and flew out. And, oh, he, he was fantastic. He was such a good, a good actor. And yeah, every, he, you know, he's like one of those guys like Charles Durning, you know, every, no movie or, and then at Walsh also, you know, no movie was ever mm. anything but better for their appearance. Uh, years ago, maybe 35 or so years ago now, I, I met him briefly and chatted with him a little bit. And and he told me, and I you know, maybe he was making it up, but he seemed sincere. He told me that the idea of his famous squealing like a pig in Deliverance, that that was his idea, and he suggested it to John Borman. Really? That's, wow. That, I'm still traumatized from that. Oh, yeah, who isn't? So, yeah. That, uh, yeah, no, I mean, that was, I, I was like, I mean, you know, that that was back when, you know, parents were like, yeah, we're going to see Deliverance, you know, and let's bring along the seven-year-old, whatever oh, I was. What a good idea. <laughs> yeah, you know, that was, <laughs> that was one of the great things. I, I remember my, my, my grandfather taking me at the age of nine to see Dog Day Afternoon. And, <laughs> and I, I think that probably, you know, has some kind of psychological impact I'll never understand. You see jo- my, Josh getting like home and Josh gets home and every time he doesn't get his way, he's screaming, Attica! Oh, right. Yeah, no, I, I, you know, it was like, what you know, it was funny as I, you know, I really watching it, you know, that, that there was a lot of swearing. So I thought it was hilarious. It was like bad news bears to me. And then all of a sudden it got serious real fast. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, whoa. But yes. That's funny. Somebody posted the question the other day on, on social media. What was the what was the most inappropriate movie you saw because you were too young at the time? Right. That would that would be mine. I mean, I honestly think I was maybe nine when he took me to see that. And I mean, you just know, you know, it pales in comparison to my, my uncle taking me to see The Longest Yard, which was oddly appropriate compared to... Uh, compared to that but yeah oh that i mean i just i never got over dog day afternoon that was 
that was too much for even even me at the age of seven or eight or whatever I was. I went to see it was a it was a World War II movie, and I I want to say it was uh, the bridge at Remagen, <laughs> and I think uh-huh. I was I was maybe eleven, and my grandfather took me to see it because he'd been in World War II. And we're going to go see a war movie, great moment, and then in the middle of the movie, an actress takes off her shirt, and I'm seeing that that for the first time in my young life, and. You know, I wanted to enjoy it, but I was so uncomfortable, and I didn't dare look to my left to see what my grandfather was doing until he leaned over, and I don't know to this day if it made it better or worse. He said, pretty nice, huh? (laughs) (laughs) That's why... I, I years ago, I mean, this is not that many years ago, maybe about six or seven years ago, we were on a, we were on a vacation and I went out to, we were renting a house. I went out to pick up some groceries and I came back and one of my kids is a hockey player. And my wife said, Oh, you know, I decided to put on a hockey movie for that. And I started thinking, Oh no, many, you know, oh. if it's not mighty ducks or miracle, oh, yeah. we're in trouble. Yeah. And sure enough, Slapshot. my wife had put Slapshot on. Oh, yes. And I walked in, <laughs> and there was my father-in-law watching Slapshot with <laughs> the kids, <laughs> who were, I think, I'm, our oldest was like, you know, 13 and down to, you know, the age of six. <laughs> and uh, and they were watching with my father-in-law, and I just kind of went, you know, I, I, I got to go take a nap. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm not going to stop it. I'm right. just not going to be here while it happens. All right, I'll let you navigate this. Good luck. Yeah, I was, I, was, I, was, I was like, you've made a mistake, and you will live with the <laughs> results of your mistake. <laughs> oh, man, that is that is awesome. Hey, what's going on uh, with you and Ricky Cobb? I know you've been working on uh, an encyclopedia of the 70s. Is that still a work in progress? Yeah, Ricky, so we're, we're working on that. We're hoping to have that ready to go by fall. Oh wow! Um, we're, uh, we're we're it's mostly going to be, I think the second book is going to be the Encyclopedia of Seventies. The first one is going to be really a compilation of Ricky's uh, Super Seventies tweets, along with some additional <laughs> material, kind of a some Legends of the Seventies type of uh, you know Bert Convy and people like that, um, you know, uh, <laughs> like inter- interspersed between uh, you know collection of the best of his tweets. And uh, he and I are working on a um, an animated series, which uh, in the future I'll be able to talk about more. But we uh, we're working on an animated series, kind of set somewhat in the world of Super Seventies sports. Oh wow! And uh, that that's been going really well. So yeah, so Rick, it, it, one of the greatest thing about the uh, the pandemic was that Rick, Ricky and I wound up collaborating on stuff. That's fantastic. Well, listen, if you need any uh, uh, mediocre voice talent for that animated project, you know where to find me. You got it. <laughs> we'll come for you. Excellent. Hey, Josh, yeah, so, so. it's always good to talk with you. Appreciate you making time for us today, and uh, I hope you enjoy the rest of your summer. Thank you. You too, and I'll talk to you soon. That's Josh Carp on Downtown Earth. Thanks to Josh, as well as uh, actress, producer, screenwriter Siobhan Fallon-Hogan, her film Rushed coming out on August 27th. And thanks to you for joining us on this week's edition of Downtown the Podcast. We'll see you next time. We remind you, Downtown is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength.